Now let's turn in our Bibles to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and to the fourth chapter of Revelation. If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 1236, 1236, and we're going to read the whole chapter. So Revelation chapter Four, beginning to read at the first verse. John has a revelation given by Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, and he's, he's told that after he has seen this vision, he is to write down what he sees. And then in chapters 2 and 3, there is a series of postscripts uh, written to seven churches, all located in what was in his day known as Asia Minor, and in our day is known as Turkey. And then he continues, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, 
Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I wonder if any of you has ever gone on one of those Christian tours that have been marketed actually now for about 50 years, tours of what's usually called the seven churches of the book of Revelation that are listed in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The seminary president for whom I used to work was leading one of these tours And so I asked him what I thought was a fairly obvious question, are you going to go to the island of Patmos? Because of course Patmos was the island on which John, who wrote the book of Revelation, had been exiled because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And it seemed to me to be fairly obvious if you were going to see the cities where the churches were, you would want to go to Patmos. And he said, well, I asked the tour operator about that. But the tour operator said, there's nothing to see on Patmos. And since he was an educated theologian, I gave him the obvious answer, tell that one to the Apostle John. Because, of course, the whole book of Revelation is his record, his written record of what he saw. And if you read through the book of Revelation, although the word here is a significant word, the really important word is not the word here, but the word see. And so there are more occasions on which John tells us, I saw this or I saw that, than he tells us, I heard this or I heard that. And that means we need to read the book of Revelation in a different way from the way, for example, we would read Paul's letter to the Romans. In Romans, the logic of the gospel is spelt out in arguments. We follow through an argument. But in the book of Revelation, the logic of the gospel is displayed to us in pictures. And actually, for some of us, that's much more challenging. Some of us are better at interpreting words than we are at interpreting pictures, which is perhaps why you should ask your children when you go home, tell me what this book is really all about, because they are used to interpreting pictures, symbols. And this chapter clearly is a chapter full of symbols. Uh, In a sense, uh, the Apostle John is like a great art expert who, who stands before some magnificent painting that you think whoever painted that had tremendous talent, but you don't see what he sees because he understands painting. And what we have in the book of Revelation is, in many ways, a a vision of the majesty and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ that John was able to see and describe because he had learned all of the Old Testament clues and 
passages that would help him to understand the bits and pieces of the mosaic that was being spread out before him in this amazing vision he has when he is caught up in the power of the Holy Spirit and he sees the glory of God. I sometimes say that the book of Revelation is the movie version of Genesis 3.15, which is the fundamental verse in the whole Bible. The whole Bible from Genesis 3 stands on top of Genesis 3.15. God is sending a Savior who will be the seed of a woman, and the seed of the serpent will seek to crush everything God does until the serpent himself seeks to crush the Savior who is the seed of the woman, but in the process will himself be crushed. Or to put it in other words, the book of Revelation is the ongoing story of Jesus' promise. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be encouraged because I have overcome the world. This is Jesus, the overcomer, teaching believers in the first century and then in every century how we can be overcomers as well. And if you look at the postscripts that were written to these seven churches, you will notice again and again and again how Jesus speaks to these churches in terms of what is involved in them overcoming. And John is encouraged in chapter 1, verse 19, to write down the things that he has seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. We might say that chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are, and chapters 6 to 20 are the things that are to take place. And what chapters 4 and 5 are here for is simply this. Living in the chaos and confusion of the, the impoverishment of the church, facing the chaos, the confusion, the persecution that there will be in the world. It's as though Jesus is saying to John, between these two realities, the state of the church in which you live and the tribulation that will be the experience of believers to the end, there is something I need to show you. There is something I need to show you. And so he tells us in verse 1 of how he heard this voice, and he was in the Spirit, and he was clearly brought into the majestic glory of the Lord. It's actually, I think, very significant that he's already told us this happened to him on the Lord's day. That's hugely significant. This happened to him on the Lord's day. He was in the Spirit, and chapters 4 and 5 tell us what he experienced, what he saw. So I want us to look and to to try and see through John's description what he saw. 
because clearly since this was his preparation to be able to live in days of stress and tribulation, the, the message is presumably the same for us. And what he sees, first of all, you'll notice, is the throne of God. I was in the Spirit, he says, on the Lord's day, and behold, a door opens. Do you see that? A door opens, and he sees in the Spirit a throne that's standing in heaven. A throne that's standing in heaven. And he's about to experience something very remarkable. He's in Patmos. He's exiled. He's not able to go to church with his fellow believers in any of these Asian cities. But in a sense, uh, you know, I think when he put down his pen on the island of Patmos at the end of chapter 22, he might have thought to himself, you know, I feel I've really been to church for the very first time in my life. And that everything I've experienced almost pales by comparison with what I experienced in this day on the island of Patmos. Because the imagery of chapter 4 is the imagery of him entering into a temple. And if you know your Old Testament well, you'll, you'll see that there runs together through this passage like, like different threads from different parts of the Scripture, reflections on the temple in Jerusalem, reflections on the, the temple in which Isaiah had his great experience, reflections of the temple that Ezekiel saw. They're, they're, like, they're like threads that are woven into a tapestry. And presumably because John knew, he's not making this up, but because he knew his Old Testament so well, he was able to describe what he saw. And what he saw was the temple of God. And in that temple of God, what caught his eye, first of all, was what was so important for him to see as an exile in Patmos, writing to a number of churches that were facing pressure, tribulation, and persecution. The first thing he saw in the temple was a throne. Yes, there are other indications this is a service of worship. For example, there are 24 elders there. This was, one might say, the first Presbyterian church of heaven. And uh, he, 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 he is brought into this worship service, as we'll see. But the first thing he sees is the throne. And there are two very obvious things about it. So obvious you might think it would be trivial to point them out. But the first is this, the throne is in heaven. God reigns on earth. But the center of sovereignty on earth is actually found in heaven. The center of sovereignty on earth is actually found in heaven. And that must have been, that must have been as much of a comfort to him as what Isaiah sees in chapter 6 was a comfort to the prophet Isaiah in days that were filled with confusion and pressure. Uh, what is Christ showing him? Christ is showing him 
that the center of authority in John's day does not lie with Rome or with the Caesars. He needs to learn to see the confusion of his times, not by viewing it horizontally, but by seeing it, as it were, vertically from the center of all things on the throne of God. And the second very obvious thing to notice is that he not only saw a throne, but he saw someone who was seated on the throne. It's not just that authority is in heaven. It is that the true sovereign is in heaven. And when you read through the rest of the book of Revelation, or if you read about the situations of the churches, you understand why this was so important for him to see, because otherwise he wouldn't see this. All he would see with human eyes would be chaos and confusion. And this is such a word for us, because uh, even as Christians, sometimes, alas, especially as Christians, our view of what happens in the world can be deflected to viewing things horizontally. Um, we see things are out of control. But think of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 about a world that is morally out of control, that makes people who are morally out of control say, we are despising God's law and despising his person and despising his word, and he, if he exists, has lost control. But you understand that Paul doesn't see things horizontally. What Paul says, no, no. He says, the reason there are these outbreaks is because God is in absolute control. And in his absolute sovereignty, he is handing you over to your desires so that the outcome of those desires will eventually lead to your own self-destruction. You, you say to people about the situation in our own country, just now, it, seems as if, it seems as if things are out of control. Our parliament cannot fix Brexit. But you see the mistake that lies within that statement? It assumes the sovereignty of parliament the ability of politicians. What if, after all, God is powerfully in Brexit? I mean, the confusion of Brexit to humble us and to teach us not to put our trust in princes, but to believe that in the midst of the chaos, God has not lost control of the situation. He hands us over to our own sin. He hands us over to our own pride. And yet we still will not be humbled. There is a tremendous lesson for us. Some of you who are my generation, you remember being taught in Sunday school, maybe before, like me, you were a, really a Christian. God is still on the throne, and He will remember His own. Some of you are nodding. His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. That's why front and center in this vision, this revelation that John receives is the first thing he sees before he sees anything else is the throne of God 
and God on the throne. Our God reigns. Second, he not only sees the throne of God, he encounters the presence of God. Uh, what he describes here is, is, a, is a sensory experience. He is, he's overcome by the majesty of God. Now, God is invisible. Uh, the Scripture teaches us that. God is, as the theologians say with their big words, also incomprehensible. We can know him, but we, we can't get our arms round him. We can only know him as creatures. We, we can't know him as he knows himself. We can't, we can't draw God. We can't define God. We, we need to allow God to define himself to us. You know, we often say how people say the way I like to think about God and, and what we're thinking is the way you like to think about God is totally irrelevant. The only relevant thing is how does God make himself known to us? And as I've said, this is a picture book. And so it's full of impressions. And you'll notice that John uses that like there was something that was like. It, it, it wasn't quite that, but it, it left that impression. And if you, if you know your Old Testament well, uh, half as well as John, you'll, you'll recognize echoes here of passages in the Old Testament. Whereas in other books, prophecy is fulfilled in a historical way. In the book of Revelation, the, the prophetic visions are fulfilled in, in pictures. And so he tells us that there was one seated on the throne who, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And the throne had a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And before the throne, it, there was in verse 6, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And if you rummage around in your mind, you'll, you'll realize these are all, this is all language that's embedded in this vision from the Old Testament. He, he sees the glory of God and in, in color terms, in sensory terms, it's like a jasper or, or chameleon, probably deep red, deep translucent red. And it's an indication, as, we, as we're, we're given very clear hint later on in the book of Revelation, that this, this jasper, carnelian color is an expression of the, of the glory of God. And the rainbow is, is it's a special kind of rainbow. Uh, not wanting to make a political statement, it's a green rainbow. It's like an emerald. But of course, it echoes the rainbow of God's promise to preserve the whole of creation and not to judge it. And he hears thunder and lightning that uh, reminds us of the, of the majestic appearance of God when he gave the law to Moses at Sinai and this, this sea. Uh, you know, sometimes you, you pass the river, don't you, and it's choppy, and some days you, you pass it, and it looks like a sea of crystal. 
And it's, it's probably both, both an indication that this is a temple because you remember there was a, there was a huge uh, container in the temple for washing that was thought of as the sea. And, and perhaps just as likely, it's a, it's, a, it's a picture of the way in which God subdues what the, what the Jewish people most feared which was the sea and all its power. Remember what Jesus did. Be still. It's a picture of God's glory. It's a picture of God's sovereignty. And yet you notice that the the one who is seated on the throne is, if I can put it this way, not alone. And what do I mean by that? Well, the one who is seated on the throne is, is the Father Almighty. But, but in his presence. Now, this is all symbol, you remember, in his presence. There are, we are told, these seven spirits of God that are represented by seven torches of fire. It's a, it's a picture of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So that as, as John approaches God, as he encounters God in this experience, he, he sees him as the Father Almighty, and, and he sees him as the, as the burning, illumining Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christian, it makes you feel, surely John missed something. You know, we shouldn't have the Father and the Spirit without having the Son. But we do have the Son, it's the Son who has just invited him there. After this, I looked, verse 1, a door standing in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, which is a reference to the voice he heard in chapter 1, which flows into this superb description of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, you see what he's experiencing here. It's Christ inviting us to know the Father and the Holy Spirit being the one through whom we can come to the Father. It's, it's a representation of who God is and how God is, but it's also a representation of how we come to encounter God. The God who is on the throne, the Father Almighty, cannot be approached unless approached in the, with the help of the Holy Spirit, cannot be understood and known without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and neither of these realities will be ours until we hear the voice of Jesus inviting us through His Word in our hearts to come. So this is a marvelous description of the throne of God. It's a glorious description of the presence of God, but it's also a tremendous description of the worship of God. He sees the throne of God. He encounters the presence of God. He experiences the worship of God. Around the throne are these 24 elders. And they may represent various things, but at least certainly they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the church of Jesus Christ built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief corner stone. So this is the first Presbyterian church of heaven. They, 
They are representatives round the throne. We, we don't yet see, we will see later in Revelation, or I should put it this way, you will see later in Revelation, there are more people here than John is focusing on. But here are the representatives of all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then these strange creatures, these extraordinary strange creatures in verse 6, full of eyes, the first like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, the fourth like an eagle, full of eyes all around and within and with six wings. And, and that's a reminder of those visions that Isaiah had and Ezekiel had. It's, it's a mosaic again. Um, and, and these are pictures, these are symbols. Are there creatures that look like this in the presence of God? There may well be. I mean, after all, if you're a Christian, you do believe in extraterrestrials, don't you? Angels and archangels, cherubim and seraphim. Do they, do they look like this? Um, eyes all around and eyes within. Um, but the big thing is this. The big thing is what they're doing. Day and night, they never cease to say. And I presume they've got great voices, so maybe we could actually say they sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now fancy having to do that day and night. Boring. Indeed, <laughs> but not if you're in the presence of God. And it's almost as though as they say this, it dawns on them the significance of what they're saying, so they, they say it again. And, and it dawns on them even more fully what they are saying, because he was and he, and he is and he, and he is to come. They, they've, got, they've got the whole of the Bible to exegete what they mean by holy. And they know they've got the whole of eternity to exegete what they mean by holy. And so they are worshipping God in his majesty and in his holiness. And this is, the, this is like the background music. You know, this is, this is just the background music. Because there's more to come. There's, there's the first hymn. Isn't there? This is, the, this is like the introit that just seems to play all the way in the background. And then there is the first hymn that is led by the 24 elders. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Uh, he's not only encountering the presence of God, but he's, he's caught up into this worship service. And as I say, he may have felt, I can go a long way for the rest of my life on this sense of worshiping God. Now, there are many applications of this, but 
We promised that the service would be shorter, so let me make just this one application. If we are in church today in the Spirit, this is the service in which we are participating. And we need to understand that's how the Bible thinks about it. Remember what Hebrews 12 says? That what we have come to as believers, in distinction from Old Testament believers who always thought that every worship service was a kind of participation in the great congregation that had gathered at Sinai, that every true worship service where God's people are brought up in the power of the Spirit and they by faith see His majesty and sense His presence is actually like John here, having the privilege of, of being in the back row. I said this was a Presbyterian church, being in the, in the back row and actually sharing in this worship so that where we actually worship is not just here on earth, but by the Spirit we share in the worship of heaven, the majesty of the Father Almighty, the illumination of the sevenfold Spirit, and the presence of the inviting voice of Jesus Christ, whatever our needs are, inviting us to come and find not only our hearts drawn out in worship, but the knowledge that all of our needs will be met and our lives will be protected by this great God. And you know, one of the, one of the things that happens to us when our worship is like that is that we experience what you remember Isaiah experienced. We so experience Christ speaking to us through His Word that we feel ourselves to be undone. And then we experience ourselves being reconstructed. And we want to do what these elders did. We want to take the crowns off our own heads. And do you notice the verb that's used here, incidentally? It it's not a polite Westminster Abbey service, this. You don't just take your crown off the head and uh, with pomp and circumstance go forward and lay it down. We're told they threw their crowns before him. What are they saying? They're saying, have it all. I am all yours. And this is our experience of worship when we're in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And this is also what enables us to live the rest of the week out of the Lord's day, knowing that we go back like John and his friends into a world that is full of tribulation and confusion and in some places such increasing persecution of Christian believers. And we are at rest because we've seen the occupied throne, we've sensed the glory of God's presence, and we've tasted what it means to worship. And this is only the beginning of this service. There is more to come. 
Whether we'll be there for the rest of the service or not is another question. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many different ways in which your word speaks to us. Some of us love poetry and it speaks to us in poetry and Some of us adore narratives and it speaks to us in narratives and some of us love logic and reasoning and argument and it speaks to us in these ways as well. But we thank you that you have also spoken to us in books that are full of pictures that appeal to our imagination. And we pray that something of the power of this picture may strengthen us, encourage us in our worship, make us love the Lord Jesus all the more, and enable us to live faithfully to him so that we too, by his power, are able to overcome. And we ask this together in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.